And page number 731, 731, Onward Christian Soldiers. that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. This passage clearly goes straight back to the one from this morning, talking about Israel and talking about Moses and talking about this command that is repeated again and again there in chapter 3 and then again here in chapter 4, when you hear my voice, do not harden your heart like in the rebellion. It's talking about Israel, how God called them out of Egypt and wanted to bring them into the promised land, but they wouldn't listen and they didn't believe, and so they did not enter into His rest. That's what the passage says that is quoted again here. Uh, it's back up in verse 11 of chapter 3, but then also re-quoted again uh, over here in chapter 4 where God says, because they didn't believe and because they hardened their hearts, God says, I swore in my anger they would not enter my rest. In this case, this entering His rest means going into the promised land. They had been slaves in Egypt, no rest to be found there. They had been wandering in the wilderness, no rest to be found there. But all of it, through all of it, God was taking them to a home, a nation in which they were going to be in His presence. This was to be entering into His rest, but they didn't do it. And the troubling thing for us here in chapter 4 is they heard the same message as we did, but it didn't do any benefit to them. Why not? We also received, verse 2, we also received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. The theme throughout all of this is there are those who hear the Word of God and believe it, and there are those who hear the Word of God and who harden their hearts. And it's especially powerful when you think about Israel being brought out of Egypt and all the things they saw, right? They've got a promise to God or from God to Abraham before they even go into slavery, long before then. God says to Abraham, all this is going to happen, by the way. He says, you're going to have a, children who are going to be a great nation. They're going to go for a certain number of generations off into slavery in Egypt. Don't worry, that's not the end. Then I'm going to bring them out and give them the land that I have promised to you. God says all this to Abraham beforehand. And all of it happens according to God's plan. And when it's time for them to leave Egypt, it doesn't just, you know, happen gently. It's not a quick, quiet moment. 
It happens accompanied by signs and wonders that are wild and incredible. A river turns to blood. The sky is darkened. There's all kinds of plagues that come down. There's frogs everywhere. You're supposed to… It grabs your attention, and all these Israelites saw all of this, and they knew that the God who is going to take them out of slavery was powerful over everything and all aspects of their life and world. There wasn't an area or a place that God wasn't sovereign over. God was powerful over all, and they saw all of this, and yet still, as soon as they go out by additional miracles, the killing of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, but the sparing of the firstborn of everybody in Israel, the parting of the Red Sea, where they walked through not on the mud, but they walked through on dry land right in the middle of it, all these signs and wonders they see, and almost as soon as they get to the far side, before Moses can even bring the Ten Commandments down from the mountain for God to tell them how they were going to relate to Him, they had already started to, how should we say it, hedge their bets a little bit. Well, this God's pretty good, I guess, but just in case, we should make some statues of some other gods and all shall worship them. This is essentially what Israel does with God over and over again. Okay, I know this God is good. I know Yahweh is good and He's God, but we might should also pray, just in case things don't work out, we might should also pray to the gods of the Canaanites. We might should also pray. They never really give up almost entirely on Yahweh, but they also start worshiping all of these other gods. It's as if they don't want to trust God alone. They still want to worship other ones, just in case, just to make sure, just to make sure all their bases are covered, which is the same thing as to say they don't believe the one true God who has shown them that He is the only true God and sovereign over all things and in all aspects. And so, since they do not believe, they do not enter His rest. Unfortunately, we see people like this as well who know the name of Jesus Christ, who have a powerful emotional moment at some point in their life, but then when it comes down to, are you going to follow Him in every area of your life? It's almost like there's some hedging. There's this, well, that's the sound. That's the sound of unbelief, really. Well, is how the sentence starts. You know Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do you know He died for your sins? Yes. Are you going to follow Him in all areas in your life? Well, here's the thing. Well, I mean, I do trust Christ, and for our sake, it's as if we are adding Him in with the other gods in our life the other things that take sovereignty. It's like we're hedging. I do trust Christ, and I want Christ in my life, but also I'm going to keep all these other things in my life as well. I can't follow Him in all things, but I'm going to follow Him in some things. And we act like Israel. This is no way to enter into His rest. This is, in essence, unbelief. I mean this by way of warning for us. Uh, not because I don't expect better things for you, as the writer of Hebrews says, the people he's writing to as well, but I mean this by way of warning to us, it's entirely possible to say, you know, yeah, Jesus Christ could be my Lord. But then not following Him, we have essentially declared belief, but have unbelief. We don't really believe, or we would obey and trust our lives into His hands. So it is with Israel. They did not enter into His rest, but there are those who do. Here's the good news for all of us. There are those who do enter into it. 
Verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest, in keeping with what he said, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in another passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. If you're tired of hearing the word rest, I've got bad news for you. We're going to use it a whole lot more as we go along and talk about this one. What does it mean? We, we do live in his rest now. So there's these ones who don't, and there's these ones who do, and the ones who do, do by faith. But what does it mean to enter into his rest? Because here the writer of Hebrews even connects it to the beginning of the world. He says God had all this planned. Even as he was building it all and laying the foundations of everything that exists, he was planning on resting on the seventh day. There is his rest. And the seventh day rest, it wasn't the last time that there was rest. It was the first time. It was this declaration that nothing else needs to be done because God has already done it. And that for sure is a theme in all of our lives. After all, when we come to trust Christ for the first time, we realize the work of our salvation has already been done. We read last Sunday night, Jesus is the one who perfected our faith, and then He sat down, you recall, we talked about last Sunday night. Why would He be sitting down? Because the work's done. And so when we come to trust Christ, there's nothing left except to enter in on the seventh day of our salvation, like on the seventh day of creation, which is to say to enter into the resting part of His life. For Israel, so there's the creation rest. For Israel, there was entering into the kingdom of God, the actual land, and that is called going into His rest. The other options for Israel included slavery, no rest to be found there. Wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, no rest to be found there. But there was a place for them, a nation and a home that was theirs. Have you ever been traveling away from home on a really good trip? It was a lot of fun, just a fantastic vacation. And yet, at some point, it was time to get back home in your own bed so that you could rest properly. Perhaps this comes with age. It doesn't. I think it works out for all of us. But uh, I've got a great little groove on my side of the bed, and it fits me just perfectly. And I can sleep there better than anywhere else. And the only place to really rest is at home. So for Israel, their rest was to be in the kingdom with him. Well, what does it look like for us? So there's creation rest, there's Israel's rest. What about us? This rest that we enter. We don't enter into the nation of Israel. So what does it mean for you and I to enter into His rest? It means a lot. It has a lot to do with this theme that goes throughout Scripture. Scripture talks about this peace that surpasses all understanding. There is Jesus who was asleep in the boat in the midst of a storm. God's rest for us is a hope. It is a certainty how everything will end up and how everything will turn out, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. The rest that Christ gives us is peace in the midst of difficulties. It is the feast prepared for us in the presence of one's enemies. This is the rest that we engage in now. I was talking to one of our church members this morning 
who is sharing a really neat story. Uh, she works with children who have autism and with their families. And uh, there was a mom whose child had been in their program for a while, and she was able to work with this child uh, who has autism. And, and the program that she's a part of was really, really helpful for the child and had been working out great. But because of various insurance and benefit things, the child was about to be dropped out of the program. And this was causing a lot of stress on our church member, the teacher, who was so worried for this child who had made so much progress. And when she talked to the mother about this and was worried on behalf of the mother, the mother says, don't worry, Jesus works all things out for those who love Him. Uh, and the mother was like, don't worry about it. And uh, our friend, our member, was just rejoicing at that peace that this woman has certainly entered into Christ's rest. Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of turmoils of having a child who's struggling with autism, has to figure out the world being on the autistic spectrum, still this mother's able to say, you know what, God's got this, it's going to be all right. In this case, sure enough, it was. Uh, the issues got sorted out, and the child was able to stay in the program and continue to grow and develop. And God bless him. <laughs> May he become a strong, godly man one of these days. This is the sort of rest that we have. Do you know people who have been entirely too much at peace in difficult circumstances that if you were in the same circumstance, you know you'd be going a little bit crazy? And somehow they're just even keel saying, you know what? God might solve this, and you know what? Maybe this ends badly, but either way, God is still good, and I know it. People have said, I might lose my job. God will provide. People who have said, this illness I'm struggling with might end in death, but you know what? God is good. This is what it means to enter into His rest, and the only way to enter into His rest like this to actually believe, believe that Christ is going to set right everything that is wrong. There are difficult circumstances all around us. There are difficult circumstances everywhere, whether it's in your family, in your personal life, those around our church and congregation, in the world. There's difficult circumstances everywhere. How does a Christian live in the rest of God today? by hope, by knowing that these circumstances are not the final word. Christ will make things right, and in this we have our hope. Verse 10 also talks about this, though. Uh, to jump ahead just a little bit, the person who has entered into his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. We'll come back to this, but there's this person who has entered into God's rest. Verse 10, who has rested from his own works just as God did from his. How is it that we enter into a rest from work now, even while we have purpose, and our purpose involves working, if nothing else, for the sake of his kingdom, but also, uh, Scripture says clearly, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, we all have to work. It's a part of life. It's not a part of the curse. Adam and Eve were working the land before the curse, before sin entered into the world. There is a sort of work, though, that is no work at all. There's two ways to go through life. There's two ways to go to work. There's two ways to work in the kingdom of God. One is working frantically and desperately because you have no idea if this is going to work out. There's a kind of working where you are working terrified in hopes that everything will be okay, and you're kept up at night, and you don't know if everything's going to be all right. And there's another kind of work where you're working, but joyfully, 
because you know no matter what, it's going to be all right. It's two different ways to work, and it applies to almost everything in life. It applies to how you do a job, let's say in a really abstract sort of way. There's the person who has no idea how things are going to work out and is terrified about it. And so even just doing their work, feeling like they're an imposter and they don't know what to do or terrified of it. And there's another person who has a great deal of certainty that everything will be just fine. You and I have the same kind of certainty, especially if you've trusted Christ many times before through difficult situations. Then you know in this situation as well, things will be okay. Uh, again, talking to some of our friends and our church members uh, about this, uh, one of the illustrations that came up uh, was we have as our church one of our members, a librarian <laughs> who works in elementary school libraries. Our librarian said, you know, it's interesting, they teach you when you're going to be a librarian, it's always going to be chaotic. At least regular school teachers, the other ones in their classroom, they get some measure of control over the pace in their classroom. But if you work in the library, you never know what's going to happen day after day. Some kid's going to get sit down there because he just needs to get out of the classroom, and so you're supposed to be reading to him. Others are going to need to be testing, and so there's going to be testing needs that come through. There's going to be a, a class that comes in for this. There's going to be a staff member that comes in to ask for help with their computer or technology. There's all sorts of things, and it's just chaotic, and you don't get to run your own schedule. And yet the best way to do this is to simply be at peace here and use these opportunities as a chance for relationship building, for friendship, for building up students and teaching them one by one, even if you only have a modest encounter, is leaning into that. You know, in this way, our librarian friend has learned how to enter into his rest, even in the midst of a chaotic work schedule that is uncertain. Uh, the same might be said of one of my favorite church events, Children's Choir. Uh, we joke with our children's choir directors all the time, uh, Christy Foster and Jenna Chambers and all the rest who Beth helps with children's choir, is Christy's like, I, I never think it's going to come together. I'm so worried. I'm never worried. Children's choir is always going to be great. Just put the kids up here and let them act a little crazy and get some of the songs right, and we're all going to be really entertained by this and love it. It's a great blessing on the children because they're going to get to learn how to sing praises to Christ, and it can't go badly. I can't emphasize this enough. It's always going to go all right. I was joking with our directors about this, uh, that they, they're sometimes worried that it's not going to go okay. Of course it's going to go okay. The same might be said perhaps for an adult choir. You might be worried uh, before a new song. You might be worried before a program or Christmas musical each year. Oh, I don't know if it's going to come together, but then each year in the past it comes together. Uh, it's going to be all right. Let's worship Christ with a joyful heart. This is the way that we live in His rest even now. We know everything's going to be all right, because Christ is going to make it right. There are chaotic times. There are difficulties. There's all sorts of trouble that happens in life, but we live in His rest even now, even as we work. We rest in the work and from the work because we know that He has us in His rest, and we know that everything's going to be all right, because Christ is going to make it right someday. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. Today is that certain day. He then specifies a certain day. Today. He specifies this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts. You'll have understood by now that what's happening in chapter four and in uh, chapter three and in chapter four here is essentially a sermon, another sermon on another passage. This passage that keeps getting repeated. So that while I'm repeating this passage, it's repeating another passage and looking at each part of it to talk about uh, what God is trying to say to the congregation. An important piece here is this: there remain for some to enter it. So while they, that is Israel, did not enter into His rest, and yet we have, by faith, been joined into it, I've got great news too. There are still more people who will enter into His rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, God specified a day for them to enter into His rest. And what is the day that God has specified for others to come and to enter into this peace? It's today. <laughs> I love this verse. I love this passage. God has prepared for you a day in which you should enter into His rest. That day is today. That moment is this moment. It is right now that we are to enter into His rest. Now, while we already have this rest and this peace, and while we are in it and live in it, there's an even greater moment of rest to come in the future. Verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. See, if Joshua, the one who actually led them into the promised land, so Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land, his disciple Joshua leads them into the promised land, into God's rest. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says, if Joshua had given them rest, well, God wouldn't have spoken later on about another day of rest that is coming. Verse 9, therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. You see, there's something in the future, a rest even for us in our future that hasn't happened yet. A Sabbath rest, the last day, the last days. For the person who has entered into his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. I love how Scripture works like this, how God's plan worked. This is the way God sorted out even before He did creation, a seventh-day rest, Israel having their rest in their land, us in Christ now having this rest and peace even in the midst of the world, but there is a future rest that is coming after all, when His kingdom comes, there is no more trouble or difficulties. There's no more chores, there's no more death, there's no more tears or sin. So on that day, this future rest is coming when there will be no more difficulties. Let us look forward to that day. And all the more, as the Scripture passage says, let us make every effort to remain faithful and following God in all things. Our enemy is unbelief. And so let us believe and trust Him with every area of our lives. This section ends with a verse that you know well. Everybody knows well. But you might not know it in context of talking about all this rest. Because it is in the context of talking about His rest. And it is in the context of Israel not making it in, but the rest of you making it in. And that even more should be making it in on a certain day that God has called today. And here's what He says, verse 12. 
The Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. How do you know anything about God? How do you come to have faith in God? How do you get faith? How do you get better at following after Him? How do you know anything about what He wants? See, the Word of God is a powerful gift. We are talking about Scripture that is right here in front of us. And so here, the writer of Hebrews says, the Bible, it's not like other books. The Bible is like a sharp sword. When you take it up to read it, it's actually reading you. It's the one doing… It sounds like a bad Yakov Smirnoff joke, you know? Uh, You guys remember him? Anyway, Soviet Russia, Bible reads you. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the Bible actually reads you, and that's the way. He's from the Ukraine, by the way, if you were curious. No joke. Uh, the Bible reads you. It's this double-edged sword that penetrates into you and judges you. You know, I, I like to read. You like to read? We read. You read a book, you decide if it's good or not. Somebody asks you, how is that book? What do you do? You judge it. You say, hey, you know, it's all right. Or you say, meh, I could pass. Uh, Or you say, it's amazing. You know, we judge these books, but when we read this book, it judges us. These words, they speak against us and to us and through us. The Bible is able to pinpoint truth. It's able to divide into the exact spot in our lives and our hearts where the problem is. It's able to convict us of our real desires and point to us who we truly are. It judges our thoughts and our intentions. The reason why this verse is here, talking about who enters into His rest and who doesn't, is this. No one pulls a fast one on God. No one gets in on a technicality. I mean, no one, when we are measured up by God, uh, is able to just sort of quickly slide in. Rather, God knows. As for those who will enter into His rest and for those who do not, God knows. And so, let us allow our lives to be marked by the kind of believing, the kind of faith that always exhibits itself in obedience. I suggest to you today, I submit for your approval, I tell you, uh, even as Scripture tells us all, that the right way to live, the best way to do it, and the only way to enter into His rest is by living a life fully obedient to Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us trust Him in all things. Let us enter into His rest now, and let us rejoice of the coming rest that God has for us when Christ returns. Father God, I thank You that You're so gracious to us I thank You that You've been patient to us and that You have allowed more and more people to enter into Your rest, and I thank You that today is the day of salvation for so many. Father God, I thank You that You're so gracious to us. I pray that You would give us Your peace that surpasses all understanding. I pray that You'd give us Your rest today tomorrow, no matter what's happening.
This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And page number 731, 731, Onward Christian Soldiers. He started to talk a lot more uh, than he ever had before. And he started to share some things from his life uh, that he had never shared. And uh, he began to share stories from his involvement with the Korean War, which is something she says her whole life he never mentioned or, or discussed. Uh, he began to share memories from growing up, some experiences that he had with some close family, uh, with some close friends, some extended family. She said that there were stories that that he shared with her that she was shocked uh, at how interesting of a story it was and how she never had the opportunity uh, to hear it up until this point. And you may have had similar uh, experiences hearing certain stories with a parent uh, or grandparent later on in their life. And, you know, just because that these stories were so seldom talked about by my grandfather, that didn't mean that they weren't important were significant to who he was. And I think the reason that he began to share them uh, near the end of his life was because these experiences absolutely were crucial uh, to who he was, and he wanted someone to know. He wanted someone to hear about it. And I was thinking about that this week uh, because, as you heard from the passage, it centers around uh, this guy named Melchizedek, someone who is barely talked about uh, in Scripture, he's talked about so little that you could make the argument he's really not that important. He's brought up in Genesis chapter 14 for three verses, and then in Psalm 110 for just one verse. That's four verses he's talked about in the entire Old Testament. Four verses. I mean, we see his name, and we can barely read it, right, let alone pronounce it. Uh, and you may hear the name and wonder who he is. I was thinking... I feel like whoever named him wanted to name him Melvin, but they sneezed in the middle of it. <laughs> and out came Melchizedek. Uh, but uh, it, it sounds like 
for some reason, the author of Hebrews, he finds him super important. Uh, and he's telling us that understanding Melchizedek is significant and crucial to understanding who Jesus Christ is as person and as Lord and as our high priest. But before we get into him, uh, the author here, he wants to reveal to us Jesus as a high priest, but not just any high priest, like the highest of high priests that there has ever been. If you remember a few weeks ago when, when Jordan was going through Hebrews 1 and 2, uh, the author was talking a lot about angels, right? And he was making this point, as awesome as the angels are, they're not as awesome as Jesus is. He is superior to the angels. And like he showed us Jesus was superior to the angels, here at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, we're being shown that Jesus as high priest is superior to the Old Testament high priests. And so he starts verses 1 through 3, and he says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed in weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people." So an example for you guys from the world of business uh, to, to help us understand, I'll use a real estate example, and I did not run this by Laura, so if I botch this, I'm sure she'll let me know later. Uh, so typically, uh, if you've bought a house, you've had this experience, most of us, you decide you're ready to buy a home, right? So you go and you find a real estate agent who functions essentially as a broker that provides the client with access to certain goods or benefits. And in the real estate example, the benefit is the home if you're the buyer or the buyer's money if you're the seller. So you go out, you look at houses, you find one, you tell your agent, I like that one, that's the one that I want. And then the agent who is functioning as the broker for this deal or the go-between or, or the mediator, however you want to say it, uh, lets the sellers know what their buyers want and for how much. Throughout the whole process, the agent is representing the buyer. The buyers and the sellers, they never meet, they never talk, they never see each other. There's no communication uh, between them. They are represented and advocated for by the agent. That's essentially what the high priest was doing for the people of God. The high priest was the mediator for the benefits of God for Israel. So God, he set up this system in the Old Testament law so that the people of Israel had someone who could go to God and represent them and offer gifts and offer sacrifices for their sins. So I'll read you a little from Leviticus 16. This is a few verses here, but I think it's important. A couple different verses from that chapter that discuss the role of high priest on the Day of Atonement. Now, I encourage you to read this whole passage later if you have time. This is Leviticus 16, uh, verses 3 and 4. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic, and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. Verses 11 through 14. When Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. 
Then he is to take a fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat that is over the testimony or else he will die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the east side of the mercy seat. Then he will sprinkle some of the blood with his finger before the mercy seat seven times. And then verses 15 and 16 says, When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. So you can see the significance of the role of the high priest there in that passage. They were the only ones who could do this for the people. Any Israelite could not go in and do this. Aaron's sons, Aaron who was a high priest, they died because they did this wrong, and they actually were priests. So it's, it's very serious. It's something God took very serious, and it was very important. And everything about this process, it needed to be holy. Everything. He needed to wash himself first. He needed to wear the holy linen. He needed to make a sacrifice for himself before he made a sacrifice uh, for the people so that he would then be fit to make the sacrifices for the people. Verse 2 of Hebrews says, He is able to deal gently, that is the high priest, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. The high priest sympathized with the people of Israel. If you go to Exodus 28, it tells us that the high priest was to wear this breastplate, uh, and on this breastplate were 12 stones. What names do you think were etched into these 12 stones? the 12 tribes of Israel. He was to wear a shoulder piece. He had a a shoulder piece on each shoulder, and on each shoulder there were six stones, total of 12, and it had engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And doing this, he carried the burdens of Israel on his shoulders and in his heart. And that's what the high priest did. That was his role. That was how he functioned. He would have been able to think about the individual's as he made sacrifices on their behalf, their faces would have been in his mind. And having to make atonement for his own sins first, being reminded of his own weaknesses, that meant he could sympathize with the weaknesses of the people, making him a compassionate and a gentle high priest. Verse 4 tells us, No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. This wasn't something that you, you tried out for. There was no application process uh, that the high priest went through to be able uh, to get this. This was a divine calling from God. It started with Aaron and his descendants, and it was only for those who came from the tribe of Levi. And God sovereignly chose these priests with an expectation for them uh, to be obedient. There was an expectation to holiness. There was an expectation for them to have humility over their own sinfulness and to be gentle and compassionate, and to sympathize with the people. This was a calling to carry the spiritual burdens of Israel. It's an impressive calling, and I really think the author of Hebrews, he wants us to read these first four verses, and he he wants us to be impressed 
with the high priest of the Old Testament because he wants us to know, as impressive as it is, it wasn't enough. It's not enough. It's not enough that the high priest washed themselves before they put on the holy linen. It's not enough that they wore the stones with the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them. It's not enough that they were compassionate to the people and dealt gently with them. It wasn't enough because they were only men. They shared a weakness with the people, and that weakness was their own sinfulness. They still fell short before God. It wasn't enough that they sacrificed bulls and goats for their sins. And we'll later hear as we're going through all of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The work of the high priest, it wasn't enough. The sacrifices that they made, they came up short. It was all, everything they did, it was only a foreshadow to Jesus Christ as the eternal and final high priest. Because even though Jesus, he existed in the form of God, this is Philippians 2, he existed in the form of God, he did not consider that something for him to hold on to, something for him to keep. He took on human flesh. He did not consider himself a man above the people. He viewed himself as a man of the people, and he lowered himself to that place. He shared in human weakness. But here's the difference between him, Jesus, and the Old Testament high priests. Jesus knew no sin. None, never once, did he fall short because even though he took on flesh, Jesus was still Lord. And he alone was righteous. And all while never sinning once, he still deals gently and compassionately with us. He opens his arms and he says, come all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That rest from sin, it's only possible because of the blood and the sacrifice that he made, because of his own blood. Because sin exists, Romans 3 tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. That means blood will be spilt because of sin. Think about the garden. I, I, I love thinking back to this. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and it says that they knew they were naked. And God, in His grace, He covered them with the skins of an animal. But for their shame to be covered, blood had to be spilled. Like God had to kill an animal there in front of them so that they could be covered in their shame. An animal had to die. All throughout the Old Testament, Blood had to be spilled. Animals had to die as sacrifices to cover up the shame of the people. But it was only temporary. This Day of Atonement that I read from Leviticus 16, they did that year after year after year. It was only temporary because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. They had to keep doing it until the Son of God came. Here's what this means for us when we think about this passage and when we think about the high priests. We can't be enough to make up for our own sinfulness. We can't live a life good enough or well enough for God to go, oh, you've actually done well. You've absolved all responsibility for your own sin. We all fall short, every one of us, every day, always. Today, everyone in here, we will fall short. 
Before I close my eyes to sleep tonight, I will have failed as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a person. That's true for all of us. But here's the beauty of Jesus as a perfect high priest. We don't have to let those failures rule over us. We don't have to dwell in the shame and in the guilt of not being enough because we can know he was enough. He carried our burdens for us on his shoulders, in his heart, just like the Old Testament priests, but he did it perfectly and he carried us in his mind, on his heart, on his way to the cross. Verse 6 of this passage, it quotes Psalm 110 about Jesus as high priest. It says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now he brings up Melchizedek, this guy that we kind of don't know a whole lot about, but it's talked about like he's important. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, someone whose story lasts about three verses in the book of Genesis. But for some reason, the author here says Melchizedek is important for us to understand who Jesus is. So this is from Genesis 14, and I encourage you to read this whole passage later. Uh, I'll kind of walk you through it here. There's a king uh, named Kedor Leamor, and I might be completely pronouncing that wrong. Uh, there's a lot of letters there, but that's his name, Kedor Leamor. And there's a few other kings I can't pronounce who get into this battle uh, with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis 14. Uh, well, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are losing, so they decide they're going to run. They flee. And so Kedorlaomer and his posse, there's some other kings there with him, uh, they steal a bunch of food, they steal a bunch of goods uh, from the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they also take Abraham's nephew, Lot. And this doesn't sit well uh, with Abraham. And if you've ever seen the movie Taken uh, with Liam Neeson, it was inspired by this story. Uh, he, he, he turns Liam Neeson on Kedorlaomer uh, so that he can get his nephew Lot back. After this happens, verses 17 through 20 of Genesis 14 tells us, After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shevev Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who, was, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So as soon as Abraham gets Lot back, there shows up this random guy out of nowhere named Melchizedek. No one knows where he came from. He's just sort of there. He just pops up. And it sort of reminds me, if you've had kids at some point, you know this experience. You're sleeping peacefully. And in the middle of the night, you just, for some reason, open your eyes and bam, there they are. And your heart like jumps out of your chest. It's like, what are you doing here right now? But this happens. So, so Melchizedek, uh, he just pops up out of nowhere and he brings some wine and he brings some bread, breaks out this nice charcuterie board. Maybe some, some meat and cheeses were involved. Uh, and he comes to Abraham and he blesses him. And then Abram, he gives him a tenth of everything that he has. And the story ends, and that short story is referenced here in Hebrews to tell us Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, here's what's important to know about Melchizedek, I think, to help us see why this is important. There's really two big things to note about this. The first thing, verse 18 of Genesis 14, it says that Melchizedek was king of Salem. He was king of Salem, and he was a priest of God. He was king and priest. And you might hear that, and you might not think much of it, but, but think of it this way. The role of a king was to function as God to the people. Not literally God, but to function on behalf of God's authority over the people. Now, the priest, the role of the priest, if you remember as we walked through earlier, was to function as the whole of the people to God. So the people, the, the priest represented the people to God, and the king represented God to the people. And when you think about the actual function of those roles, you can see it's not something you'd think was actually possible uh, to do both jobs. It sounds like the kind of thing that would give an HR department nightmares, right? Like, it, it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So if you look at all the other kings in the Old Testament, Saul, David, Solomon, Jeroboam, Ahab, Joash, that take the list on and on, none of them were also priests, not one of them. You can go through the priests in the Old Testament, Aaron, Eliezer, Phineas, so on and so on. Not one of them was also a king. You only have a priest and a king two times. First in Genesis 14 uh, with Melchizedek, and he is pointing us to the second and the last, Jesus Christ. He is our king and our high priest. We went through Revelation uh, before Hebrews, and it was made very clear, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is supreme ruler, creator of everything and everyone on the eternal throne, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is our high priest, offering himself for our sins, acting himself as the mediator between us and God so that we can have forgiveness and salvation and an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The second thing that's important, according to the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, he shows up out of nowhere. At that time in Genesis, no priesthood system had been set up yet for the people of Israel. And Melchizedek, he wasn't even a king of Israel. He, he was a Gentile king. There was no secession of priests at that time, or there was no order of priests for Melchizedek. From the story we are given, the priesthood of Melchizedek, it has no beginning or no end. We don't know anything about it. It's just there. And it's pointing us to Jesus Christ, who has no beginning and no end. He is king and priest forever, and he always has been. And there are different opinions about uh, who Melchizedek actually is, and I, I've thought about this a lot this week, and I read a lot about it, and some view him as uh, a Christophany, uh, which is a pre-virgin birth Jesus manifesting himself in an earthly form uh, before the New Testament. Others think that he's just a man, king and priest of God during this time, and I personally, I lean towards uh, the latter view there, sometimes I think what Scripture doesn't say is as important as what it does say. And usually when God is appearing in the Old Testament, Scripture kind of makes it very clear that God is appearing in the Old Testament. Um, and in the short few verses that we have on Melchizedek, I don't really see that revealed there. Obviously, I could be totally wrong, but either way, 
Melchizedek is pointing us to Jesus Christ. That's the main point. When we read about Melchizedek, we should think about Jesus Christ. That's what's most clear and most important. He was king and priest, Melchizedek was, and Jesus Christ is king and priest. Verses 7 through 10, it says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We can sometimes think about how Jesus was perfectly obedient. And this is, I'm speaking from myself, my own thought process. I can think about how he was perfectly obedient and had the mindset, well, duh, he was, he was God. Like, of course he was able to be perfectly obedient. It was probably no issue for him to be perfectly obedient. obedient. And it can lead us to wonder, does Jesus really understand the struggle down here? Like, does he actually know that it's hard? Like, it's hard to follow God. It's hard to be obedient. Does he actually understand that? The answer, according to other places in Scripture, in these 7 through 10 verses, absolutely yes, he understands. Uh, these verses here, they're referencing Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. He offered prayers, and he offered appeals to God, and he offered tears to God the Father. That passage, it's Luke chapter 22, if you want to write it down. That passage in Luke 22 says that Jesus was in anguish as he prayed, knowing what he was about to go through. It says that he was sweating and that his sweat was like drops of blood. And he prays to God, if there's any other way, for people to be saved. If there's any other way for me to not have to go through this, please let me not do this. That is the prayer of our Lord in the garden on the night of his arrest. And Jesus, he knew the obedience he was called to, the whole reason he came. But in that human weakness, the human weakness that he took on, his physical body experienced the desire for there to be another way. But in his heart, he still prayed, not my will, but yours, God, be done. So whenever we feel the desire for another way, which we all feel every day, we can be comforted to know Jesus actually knows what that's like. It wasn't easy for him to obey in that moment. Like He understands that it's hard sometimes because he experienced that difficulty himself. He shared human weakness with us. Our Lord and our God lowered himself, like left the kingdom of heaven, and took on our weakness. But unlike the high priest of the Old Testament who fell short, and unlike us who fall short, he didn't. He was faithful. And that is why he alone can save. That's why he is the final high priest, the eternal high priest, who sympathizes with us, whose blood covers us forever. I'll read these last few verses, uh, 11 through 14. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. 
You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. When Alice was born, like every, every baby ever that's been born, uh, she lived on milk, right? Uh, for a while, that's all she needed. But she's three and a half now, uh, and she's living on a lot more than milk. If she had it her way, it'd be chocolate and marshmallows. Uh, but she, she's living, she is living on much more than milk. Uh, the point came for her when it was time for her to grow and to have something just a little bit more solid for her health and for her well-being. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. And he connects back to Melchizedek saying, I really would like to talk more about this with you guys, but it's complicated and you guys haven't been growing in your spiritual maturity. And what he really is saying for us is it's important for our spiritual maturity as Christians that we understand who Melchizedek is, that we hear that name and we go, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I know why he's important. It's important for our spiritual maturity to know what it means when we read Jesus is our high priest. It's important that we know that. For new believers, uh, there's a time when the simple things of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, impact our spiritual growth in a healthy way. But a time comes, and and that time is going to be unique for anyone and everyone, a time comes when we need to be ready to go deeper. Because it's good for us as individuals, and it's good for the kingdom of God. There may be moments when we're struggling with the assurance of our salvation. And it's going to help us to understand Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, points us to Jesus Christ, who is our eternal king and priest. And if our eternal king and priest says his blood covers us forever, then that means it covers us forever. And we can grow in our assurance. In moments when we're struggling with temptation, or maybe we just find the Christian walk really difficult, and there's days where it's really hard, it will be comforting to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord, He knows what we're going through. He knows what that's like because He shared in that human weakness. It's going to be helpful for us as Christians to look back to the high priests in the Old Testament and to see, while they they really did, like, they carried Israel on their shoulders, literally and figuratively, and they carried them in their heart. And it's impressive, but it still came up short. But Jesus, he did it perfectly. It's going to be important for us as Christians to look back at the high priest and to understand, like, they didn't hide away for a whole year until the Day of Atonement and then just come out uh, for this special day so they could offer sacrifices. Like, they, they lived in the camps with the people. They did not consider themselves above the people. They were men of the people. They knew their faces, knew their names, knew their stories, like had dinner with them daily, nightly. That's what happened. And when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't like hide away until it came time for him to to be crucified and to give his life on the cross, right? No, he lived with people. He was a man of the people sharing in our weakness, having dinner with them, meals with them, praying with them, teaching them. Like He did life with them. And so when he did go to the cross, he was thinking about their faces. 
He was thinking about their stories. He was thinking about their names. And when he prayed that night in the garden and he was struggling to make the decision to say like, God, not my will, but yours, his heart cared so much for people, for us today and for the people then that he was willing to obey God, even though he was in anguish over it, even though his sweat was like drops of blood over it, because he is faithful and because he is good, because he is Lord and because he loves us. And when we do fail, which we will fail, all of us, every day, it's even more comforting to know that he didn't fail. And that it makes everything okay. We can go to sleep at night and have peace. And I, I think the past three sermons I've mentioned sleep, uh, go, going to sleep. But I just, I find it so encouraging that I don't have to toss and turn through the bed at night because I'm, I'm concerned over a mistake I made. Like, I can know his blood covers it, and I'm, I'm okay. Like, I can have a peaceful night's sleep because Jesus is Lord. And that's the gospel. In this passage, it's calling us as believers to think about and learn on these deeper things of the gospel because it's good for us. And like every passage in Scripture is doing, it's calling those who don't know Jesus as Lord to trust in Him. Let the great eternal King and High Priest Take the burden of sin from you today. He wants to do it, and he wants you a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the gospel that's in this passage today. We're grateful that 2,000 years ago, you had us today on your heart and on your shoulders as you went to the cross. Help us to be encouraged by this passage and to be better equipped uh, to live faithfully for you and to spread your gospel and advance your kingdom. It's Jesus, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you guys need to come forward this morning, for whatever reason you have, come forward. Uh, if you just need prayer, you can come forward. I'd be happy uh, to pray for you this morning. Uh, if you uh, have gone through the membership process and you'd like to join the church, you can come forward and we'll vote on that for you today. Uh, if you've trusted Christ today and you want to come forward and share that with us, we would love to celebrate your faith with you. Uh, for whatever reason, if you have a reason to come, come forward. Of atonement, and then just come out uh, for this special day so they could offer sacrifices. Like they, they lived in the camps with the people. They did not consider themselves above the people. They were men of the people. They knew their faces, knew their names, knew their stories, like had dinner with them daily, nightly. That's what happened. And when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't like hide away until it came time for him to, to be crucified and to give his life on the cross, right? No, he lived with people. He was a man of the people sharing in our weakness, having dinner with them, meals with them, praying with them, teaching them. Like he did life with them. And so when he did go to the cross, he was thinking about their faces. He was thinking about their stories. He was thinking about their names. And when he prayed that night in the garden and he was struggling to make the decision to say, like, God, not my will, but yours, his heart cared so much for people, for us today and for the people then, that he was willing to obey God, even though he was in anguish over it, even though his sweat was like drops of blood over it because he is faithful and because he is good, because he is Lord and because he loves us. And when we do fail, which we will fail, all of us, every day, it's even more comforting to know that he didn't fail. 
and that it makes everything okay. We can go to sleep at night and have peace. And I, I think the past three sermons I've mentioned sleep, uh, go, going to sleep, but I just, I find it so encouraging that I don't have to toss and turn through the bed at night because I'm, I'm concerned over a mistake I made. Like, I can know his blood covers it and I'm, I'm okay. Like, I can have a peaceful night's sleep because Jesus is Lord. And that's the gospel. And this passage is calling us as believers to think about and learn on these deeper things of the gospel because it's good for us. And like every passage in Scripture is doing, it's calling those who don't know Jesus as Lord to trust in him. Let the great eternal king and high priest take the burden of sin from you today. He wants to do it, and he wants you a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the gospel that's in this passage today. We're grateful that 2,000 years ago, you had us today on your heart and on your shoulders as you went to the cross. Help us to be encouraged by this passage and to be better equipped uh, to live faithfully for you and to spread your gospel and advance your kingdom. In In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, If you guys need to come forward this morning, for whatever reason you have, come forward. Uh, If you just need prayer, you can come forward. I'd be happy uh, to pray for you this morning. Uh, If you uh, have gone through the membership process and you'd like to join the church, you can come forward and we'll vote on that for you today. Uh, If you've trusted Christ today and you want to come forward and share that with us, we would love to celebrate your faith with you. Uh, For whatever reason, if you have a reason to come, come forward.